All right, uh, here we are on um, October 8th, 2015, at the Science Fiction Club meeting. And uh, this week, uh, this month, we're talking about Marooned in Real Time by Werner Vinge. Uh It's the one on my favorites list, so you probably know how I feel about it, unless I had a drastic change of heart in the last uh, few weeks, but I didn't. But we'll let other people talk about what they thought, because they're probably reading it for the first time. So, okay, whoever. Well, I guess I'll start off. Uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I found it difficult to follow the different subplots and, you know, the different groups of people um, and, and keep track of the, of the characters. And I, I didn't fully understand uh, the purpose of them marooning poor Marta in, in real time, you know, and, and, and you know, causing her eventual death. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting detective story, a mystery story, but I think I'm, what I most like was the, the science involved, you know, the, the, the idea of, the, of, of putting them in these bubbles or whatever you want to call them and, and then jumping through thousands of years of time. And I also enjoyed the description of, of, of the earth where they were at, you know, the, the Campuchian Alps. And, and the Inland Sea, and the, those monkeys were an interesting group of people. And the different characters were good. Uh, that, uh, what was her name? That Spacer, she was an interesting character. So it had a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of good points. I think it's a book that, I, as I was mentioning before we started, it, it probably will be worth reading at least you know, another time. Unfortunately, I don't have you know, the time to do that, but I think I would, would probably appreciate it if I read it a second time even more. Yeah, I liked the book. I found it a little difficult, too, and I wondered if reading the first book might have given me a better sense of the characters because um, I got a little confused with some of the, um, I forget what you call them now, the ones that were of y- Yellen and, and Marta's group. Um, I really liked the time stuff, too, the bottling up, the technology aspects of it. And it's interesting because Mary mentioned that she's not a big mystery fan. You know, I really don't like mysteries either, but I don't mind them in sci-fi because... They're not as formulaic as I tend to find them in regular fiction. In sci-fi, you have all this extra stuff going on, so I tend to like mysteries more in sci-fi. And I thought this one was a good one. I mean, you knew when he came to the passage of Marta describing their encounter that something was amiss, and it was only a question of figuring out what it was. And I agree with Martin. I really like the Della character also. Well, I really like this book, too. And um, I... I had never read anything by Vinji at all, and now I want to go back and read some more stuff by him because he just impressed the heck out of me, and um, I thought it was just pretty darn good. I didn't have too much trouble, I think, jumping into the different, um, I don't know what you call them, schisms. They're not schisms because I didn't break off from anything, but all the different groups of people because I thought they were fairly well explained. But um, it was, it was, I was just impressed. I thought that the mystery part was handled well, and I am a big mystery fan. But I also thought that the science fiction part was really good, and I was kind of expecting it to maybe be a little bit dated. And it was written, like, clearly, what, Evan, you probably know, maybe in the 60s or the early 70s at the latest. And yet, other than... Um, time kind of telescoping down a little bit more than it really has. Um, I thought it was really 
well handled. I mean, the whole concept of having those headbands that are the um, your data communication and stuff, you know, that that probably isn't so very out of reason of the way that that could end up happening. Uh, it was written in 1986, and uh, I read a, I was looking for some stuff to put in the newsletter about it, and uh, I read a, a review from a guy who said he thought that when he first read it, he thought the data cards were, you know, having the whole database on them, like when Taunts left his database in his jacket. He thought that sounded a little far-fetched, but now he's carrying around, you know, multiple gigabytes in his pockets, and he says, well, it doesn't sound so far-fetched now. Um, but for Martin, the reason that Marta was marooned is because Juan Chanson did not want her to reveal that he was a follower of Jason Mudge, the religious nut who believed that Jesus was coming in the year 2000 or whatever, and because that would destroy his credibility on his alien invasion paranoia. So he did not, you know, that's the reason he couldn't bring her back. And he kind of explained that in the end, um, that, you know, when Juan basically confesses to everyone why he couldn't bring Marta back once he had marooned her. He was an expert in hacking, which which Vinji in this book called Penetration and Perversion. Um, but he cracked or hacked uh, the, all the computers for Yelen, and the only ones he couldn't get to were Della, which is why he was trying to persuade Will that Della might be one of the aliens, you know, invading. Um, so, um, so when it came down to the end, you know, he um, was able to take over all of them except for hers. And... Uh, so that's why he had to maroon her. Uh, question, did they ever clarify what actually caused the extinction of humanity? Because that, to me it seemed like that left that unanswered. Well, they did uh, to an extent. They, 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 uh, they put out two theories. One was the, well, three theories actually. Monica's theory was that mankind extinctified itself. And Juan's theory, which some other people agreed with, was that they had been destroyed by aliens, but the theory that Della and Yelen and some others believe, and what the author believes, if you read the afterword, is that humanity went through a technological singularity, uh, though he did say it didn't seem likely that the entire human race would vanish, but uh, I think he just did that for a dramatic effect. Um, but his theory, you know, which he's written non-fiction papers about, um, and it's the first place that I heard of it back in 1986 when I read it in Analog, and it just blew me over and hasn't you know, changed my view of science fiction and the future ever since, which is why it's on my favorites list, among other things. But um, those are the three theories, but the one the author believes is the last one, and the one I believe. <laughs> What exactly is a technological singularity? <laughs> well, that's what Della explained in the book, which is one of my favorite passages. And when uh, it's the exponential increase in intelligence that comes about either through artificial intelligence or through human computer, like those headbands that allowed the high techs to communicate with their computers. Well, if you integrate them enough 
and cause, you know, you can cause a basic increase in intelligence. And what you have then is you have an, a continuing acceleration of progress uh, because intelligence is the basis for progress. When you increase intelligence, then you increase the um, things that can be invented. The, you know, technology continues advancing. And eventually you get to a point that baseline humans, like the ones that are around now, wouldn't be able to follow what's going on anymore. And that's the, kind of the definition of a singularity. It's analogous to the, what goes on at the center of a black hole. So that's where he got the term, though actually he borrowed it from von Neumann. But anyway, um, von Neumann used it first um, in 1958. But um, the center of a black hole the matter and density gets so high that the laws of physics as we know them kind of break down and you can't really predict what's going on anymore. You know, you can't extrapolate from what we know about physics what's going to happen in there. And it's kind of the same thing with the technological singularity. When technology gets advanced enough and intelligence increases by whatever means, artificial or human, uh, biological enhancement or whatever, there's a number of different ways it can happen. Um, then it can't, you can't follow that. You can't predict what's going to happen after that. You wouldn't even understand it. I mean, from our point of view, it would be incomprehensible, just as, uh, well, the dog that's sitting behind me can't really understand most of what we do. So, you know, in a way, we've gone through a singularity relative to him well, millions of years ago. But anyway, that's the uh, general idea. That's really interesting. Um, your explanation is better because I didn't understand that either. I'm glad Martin asked that. And I, I, I remember rereading her explanation and still not understanding it. So it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like they're saying the intelligence increased so much that we don't know what happened. I, that seems like kind of a cop-out, um, unless I'm missing something. Well, uh, it's not... Well, as I said, he, as he said at the end of the book, it, he doesn't think it would really be a vanishing of the entire human race. But it's not really a cop-out if um, something, whatever it is, an, a super, an AI or a human computer, you know, can do things that normal human beings can't do. It's not really a cop-out to say that you don't know what's going to happen after that, because that's basically what he's saying. Okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Okay, I can accept that. Um, the other things I liked about the book were the relationships between the people. I liked that Ryerson and Yellen could work together even though she couldn't stand him and even though they were of different um, intellectual abilities. I thought that was nice, the way they built that relationship without overdoing it. Someone refresh me on what happened What. What what happened to that guy that did did something to his family and he lo he lost control and really <laughs> was going to you know really bash into him or something I forget what what that guy had done to his family back in you know at the end of the the, the normal century you might say before he before they were bottled well he bobbled Will Brier he didn't do anything to his family he caused his he bobbled Will Brierson because he was afraid Will was going to catch him in his embezzlement scheme so he bobbled him without his knowing and so he could not see his family and his family was stranded back in normal time back in the 22nd century or 21st 22nd so he's like you know so he bobbled him and he couldn't get out for a million years or whatever it was a hundred thousand a million whatever it was it was so long 
that so his he didn't do anything to his family except rob them of you know he was snatched from them basically that that caused him to have such, such rage that he lost, lost complete control for the moment oh another thing i want to mention about the book well a couple things first of all you notice that um you know there are a lot of books not not in science fiction well even there somewhat though i don't tend to read them too much will put, you know, certain kinds of people in and then kind of, you know, they, they have a way of trying to, you know, add, you know, um, he, he put the, you notice he put the gay couple in, but he didn't make a big deal out of them being gay. You know, Yolanda and Marta were a couple. And he puts the black guy in, you know, the um, who's the chief, you know, he's the detective. Uh, he didn't make a big deal of that. He just put them in, you know, as regular characters. He didn't make, you know, he wasn't out to say how great it was that, you know, he put these people in the book, and he wasn't out to, you know, uh, hammer you with the fact that, you know, they were just as good as other people or anything like that. He just put them in, you know, and that's that was kind of a nice touch because it just made, you know, it just made them normal people, which is, you know, what they are. And that was kind of neat. I like that a lot, too. And I notice you see that more in science fiction than in regular fiction. They'll throw in gay couples or um, other interspecies or interracial couples, and it's just the norm. They don't even, they just mention it in passing, and everybody accepts it, and it's no big deal. I really like that, too. Let's, have, let's hear what Lizzie has to say about it. Here she goes. It's a good thing that Evan was here because... I would have needed guidance, otherwise it would have been a tough read for me to get through that book. Um, I'm sorry that Mary didn't stick with it longer because I think it got better as it went along, but being a, I don't know if I'm a humanist or what I am, but um, I'm not that far future thinking a person, I, I tend to think what can I do now or what can I learn from this. I don't know, there, was, there are things you could learn from it, but... My favorite part was Marta's diary, just because it was conceivable. They weren't hopping around time, and um, I'm I'm kind of simple. <laughs> oh yeah, and another thing I liked about the book was, and and you don't, I wouldn't have expected this from a hard science fiction writer, but he describes the scenery so well, the forests and the even the clouds and the sunsets and stuff, and the jungles. You know, he does this really well, you know. Um, that's another thing that you could just see, you know, when, when he and Della are near the end of the book looking for the cairn, and you can see the sky and, the, and the, the forest and where the forest and the jungle meet, and he really paints this picture very well. And with Monica, early on in the book, when they're talking about those fire dragons or whatever, and he describes the forests and the savannas and, and so on, and he really brings the future Earth you know, to life very, you know, very well. Um, I, this is, um, I'm, this is a little bit about its description, but wasn't it something in the jungle when the air was kind of murky and green and it turns out that all that fog was, was um, spider droppings? That was just so gross to think they were, they were breathing that and, you know, those poor little monkey characters were dying and it was... It, but it was very imaginative. Um, I thought the punishment at the end was outweighed the crime because 
they did, you know, I'm Christian, but it's very hard for me to believe in hell because I just don't think a loving God would consign anybody for any reason to eternal misery and damnation and, and hopelessness. And that's what they did. They consigned that character to endless suffering. And, and I just don't think anybody deserves that. That's an interesting point, Lizzie. Um, Evan, I agree with you. I thought that the way that he described the planet was just fantastic. And you know what it reminded me of? The book that we read about, uh, what was the name of it? Grass? Anyway, isn't that Sherry Tepper? Um, It was almost as, I thought they both were really good, and it kind of reminded me of, Whoever's writing that was, and I um, apologize for not remembering the name. The book that we just read before, whose name I already forgot, you know, about about the planet and everything, they, they had some good descriptions of that planet also. But, yeah, I, I as I mentioned before, I enjoyed the descriptions very much. One thing that I, uh, I, I sort of forgot or I'm a little bit uh, unclear, when they had that war with all the ships and everything, who, who was, they were, were, they, were fight, they were just using robotic type things to fight each other, basically? They were, uh, well, it was Juan's, it, well, Juan had subverted all of the weaponry except for Della's, and so they were fighting, yeah, mostly through robotics, but they were running it through their headbands, which is why, you know, at the end he was trying to get her disconnected, which is why he sent those, you know, nuclear weapons across America, because, you know, she was saying, you know, he wants to empty me out, which is, um, you know, because he would... You know, he was uh, trying to keep her from running her forces against him. Um, so, yeah, that was another great scene with him and with her and Will, you know, in the cave. You know, there, there's a lot of heart in that book. You know, not just Marta's diary, but with Della and Will in the cave and, you know, with the, you know, the party and, you know, the, the ball that bounces that's going to be interesting when they do, if they can develop something like that. That's going to be kind of fun to have a ball like that, the volleyball that they used. Sweetie? Um, one of the things that troubled me were those, that family who liked to just travel forward all the time and see what was going on. What bothered me about that is that they were using the earth just as a tourist, a giant tourist attraction. They were living their lives without contributing or leaving the world a better place. And I always think that's if, you know, when we die, what we left behind are maybe the people's lives that we made better or any any kind of positive influence that we had during our lifetime. And they were just using the earth like a toy or like, you know, a giant TV screen or something. Those people made me think of the Kardashians, although that Tammy person tried to be helpful in her own way. Um, what you said, Lissy, about the punishment at the end, um, I thought they just did to Juan what he did to Marta. Um, they kind of ejected him, so he was going to have to be all by himself, and so he probably would only live for a natural lifetime. Did I miss something? Yeah, what you missed is that they gave him medical bots and things so that he couldn't die. They, uh, well, he, he lived for 10,000 years. 
well, alone. That was spooky, I'll admit. I mean, you could see how his mind was just going. They didn't let know, him die as time. soon as he would, as, like as Marva did. But one thing that shows, uh, you know, kind of evil breeds evil and good uh, breeds good is that Marta, when she was isolated, never totally lost um, her mind. You know, she she had larger goals and plans and, you know, she had short-term and long-term goals. And it shows that the guy who was, you know, kind of evil in his core didn't, couldn't be positive with his isolation and you know it got more and more skewed and crazy but you know as Evan said they made him suffer for 10,000 years not the lifetime that Marta had. Now, I had forgotten that or somehow missed it I, um, yeah then I totally agree with you that as bad as he was that's pretty excessive they could have just done to him what he did to her and let him die a natural lifetime after a natural lifetime. Actually, that's one of the parts I remember at the very end. They're describing her, and then they were describing him, and it just got to be on and on. It was almost like this huge, huge case of dementia that they were describing. And also, um, I did enjoy the science, the parts that I remembered from. Actually, they described a lot of that in the first few chapters, but, yeah, the way that it ended with one, I thought, wow. that w It was so incredibly vivid. I mean, it just kind of stuck with me for a few days, and I thought, what a horrible way to go, you know? I think we should reread the book for next month. Yeah, it's not that long. That's true. Actually, it's a pretty short book to pack so much into such a short book. That is, That in itself is... Is worth you know gives it a lot of merit. Deb, if you're interested in reading something else, and the other one that's on my favorites list is A Fire Upon the Deep. It's much longer, but it's fabulous. It doesn't take place on Earth at all. Uh, it's I think it's it, it won a Hugo uh, in 1992, if I remember correctly, or 93. I can't remember which year it was now, but it was early 90s. Uh, so it was written after this, but it it does it's not in the same universe at all. Uh, but it's much longer, so like 24 hours long or something, 23. It's on Bard. Now, the prequel to Marooned in Real Time, The Peace War, is not yet on Bard. It's narrated by Bruce Hunty as well. But um, the only character that's from that is Della, that goes over to, the, to uh, Marooned in Real Time from The Peace War. All the other characters are different, except for, well, Christian Giraud. We don't actually see him in the first book. Um, he was one of he was the peace authority guy who had the, you know, had the, um, the zygotes and the uh, artificial wombs and stuff that he was going to hold over the settlement if they didn't, you know, obey him. But luckily they got him back from him. Um, anyway, that's um, the peace war is going to come up on Bard eventually. But Marooned in, uh, uh, out of the a fire upon the deep is already up there. Well, I probably would go and download that because I was really impressed with this, and um, and it sounds cool. I, I did have a question for you, since you have read the first book, too. Um, so was it more obvious that Della was actually a sort of good person uh, if you had read the first book? Because we were really left in the dark until almost the end on that part. No, she was not until the very end of the well, no, I'm gonna, I don't want to spoil it. 
but no, she was not. She was a cop. She was working for the peace authority, and she was very good at her job. But she was not, you know, um, a, a good person in the first book. Uh, but as she said, she grew out of that. But she. So she, she was, was a, a dishonest cop? She was a very good cop. No, she was just working for the wrong side. She was working for a tyranny. Um, she was uh, very good, but she, uh, well, I don't want to say what happens in the end, but, but through that book, she was, you know, she, she's a different person than she is in the, in the Maroon in real time, because she, you know, all this thousands of years she experienced between the first book and the second. Um, but no, the first book, she's a different character. I, uh, I remember. Could you, could you, Evan? Could you go over the basic, the different? Uh, how should I put it? The different allegiances in a book, because they did mention a peace authority, and I wasn't sure exactly, you know, in detail what they were. And then there were the New Mexicans, and what were some of the other uh, groups or sects? And of course, then you had the, the major main division between the low tech people and the high tech people. But I think among the low tech people, we had these different, different. Uh, political affiliations, I guess. Well, basically all you had were the Peace Authority and the New Mexicans, then you had the unaffiliated who had just, they'd been picked up here and there by, you know, the Korolevs. And then, you know, you had the high techs who were, you know, in their different, you know, they, they had factions, but um, most of them were for the plan until, you know, near the end when you could see that some of them weren't were out for themselves, but um, but that's that's pretty much it. You just had those three low tech factions, which were the two, you know, the former governments, and then you had the. See, Vinji's future is. I think he's fairly libertarian in his politics, and you notice he referred to private police forces and companies. Um, so in in the future, in the peace war, and 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 later after between the peace war and. Uh, the singularity, you get, um, you know, a lot of Earth is doesn't, isn't run by governments anymore in his future. A lot of it's done by private companies and police forces and, and stuff like that. Now, who enforces all that? I'm not sure how that works exactly, but I'm just telling you that's the... So a lot of these people weren't used to being governed by anybody that, you know, that were in, that were bobbled for whatever reason. So you have the New Mexicans and the Peace Authority, and then you have the ungoverned, you know, the independents. Uh, those are the major, you know, groups in the low techs. And uh, the detective guy was one of the, I guess you'd call it ungoverned. And um, weren't all the others like the New Mexicans were the NMs and the peace, the peace people were the peacers? Is that the nicknames for them? Yeah, the NMs and the peacers. It certainly gives a lot to think about, and as I say, a lot put it packed into a relatively short book. There was that bit about having the women produce, what, ten children every how often, Evan? Ten years? Uh, uh, every, every t- twelve, ten to twelve children every twenty to five years it or was, something? It was just, that sounded grueling. I mean, yeah, I, he was pretty realistic about that because, you know, how would life be if, if you know, what, what kind of social environment would you have to go back to, you know, to have that kind of, you know, reproductive rates and what are the women, what, how, the, how are the women going to handle, you know, because they're not used to that. They didn't grow up in that kind of environment. And here they are, you know, basically going back to, you know, medieval times in some ways with the women 
reproducing and the men, you know, not having to, you know, bear that burden. So that was very uh, well thought out. Yeah, I like that aspect of it, too. I was telling Martin before we started, I'm reading a four-part series in Analog, and, and they have that same sort of thing. They have a world divided where one group of people thinks they need to multiply and have as many children as possible to fill up the earth, and the other people think they ought to show some restraint. So when I started thinking about this book before the meeting tonight, I was getting confused on some of the characters and some of the groups. So when you say the basic premise of the whole book was the fact to try to get enough people and and find a place where humanity could survive because what was the maximum number of people just a couple hundred 200 I think and the fact that they were they went to so much trouble to bring that that bottle which was far below the earth and they had to use nuclear explosions to bring it up to the surface and all the damage that it did to you know certain parts of uh, of that area and everything, and all basically to try to ensure the survival of the of humanity. Apparently, well, that was the idea because without those uh, zygotes and and reproductive, art, you know, the artificial uh, womb tanks and whatever they had, um, they needed as many people as possible to build a viable, you know, without you because know, because the technology was wearing out. Yeah. Them. People the high-tech people brought it wouldn't last forever and they needed as many people to ensure you know genetic diversity and so on because you know as it turned out in the end the the guy cheated them of their you know their artificial reproductive stuff uh her turned out to be Giro, and uh so you know they needed to get as many people you know as a diverse array you know to ensure that they could restart the human race and build a, you know, a diverge, you know, without inbreeding and all that. Also, wasn't it that they needed a large enough population that they could actually do some manufacturing without it being a huge um, burden on the people that were there? Well, okay. They needed the work. You're right. They needed the workforce. So it wasn't just diversity. They needed people because the machines were... You know, they knew that their technology was going to degrade and not last, and so they needed people to build, to do manufacturing, as you said, so they could sustain themselves without the help of the high-tech things that they brought with them. I wanted to, you know, I don't know if we finished the book yet, but I wanted to mention something uh, off-topic from the book, and that was the interesting thing, how they, that movie, The Martians, based on the book that we read not too long ago, has become very, very well accepted. You know, they were, everyone's very impressed by the scientific accuracy of the portrayal. Yeah, we went out and saw that on Tuesday, and uh, it was very well done. We have, we have a theater here that has descriptive video, so we can listen to it on the little headphones while they're uh, playing the movie. So it was pretty cool to hear the descriptions and how well... He stuck to the book quite well. He had to compress some things, of course, because of getting a movie, and you know, not as much time. But but overall, he really, and this is Ridley Scott, the guy who did I don't know what he did, uh, some real downbeat movies. You know, this is his first real, you know, optimistic, upbeat kind of thing. You know, sure he was or it was an ordeal, but he comes out of it, you know, fine in the end and. You know, Ridley Scott's not known for that kind of thing, so I'm 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 impressed that he was able to pull this off 
and impressed that he did not dumb it down. Um, I'll tell you something fun that they that they did change is the bad language. When, yeah. we, when we read the book, it was full of, in fact, the very first line has the F word yeah, in it. Yeah, like two or three words in. And um, the movie cleaned up the language, and even when they used bad language once, he was corrected and told to clean up his, his speech because the whole world was reading it. And it's interesting to me how much Evan loved the movie because he didn't read the whole book. And I just loved that book because I could follow. A, a lot of the science was actually within my grasp and it, enough of it that I didn't feel left out. And it was a human story of survival. And I, I like the smaller scale. I don't really care for novels on a, you know, I don't know. I, I scale with thousands of years. That's just not. I got bored with it. I mean, it was just too much. I don't know. I, I want a. I want a story. I, I was more reading more like an engineering manual to me, and I just didn't think. You know, I know I'm in the minority on that, but I, I just like something a little. I don't know. A little more imaginative, but but not. You know, I don't want to see. You know, all that engineering stuff all the time. It's just a little too much. Well, but it turned out there was a lot more than that in it. It wasn't okay. Yeah, I was kind of with you on that, Evan. I, I thought the book was good. I recommended it to some people that are scientifically inclined, but it was a little too much science for me. Since we're on um, other books we've read, the last month's author, Brenda Cooper, has a story in the current Asimov, um, which. I can't say I, I could recommend it. I didn't even finish it. But I thought it was interesting that she showed up immediately after we had read a book of hers. Yeah, I remember starting that story, and it just kind of turned me off. But I'm kind of getting in, well, rather late, I guess, to the four-part serial in Analog. I didn't really get into the first couple of parts, but then part three, the aliens started showing up, and I decided I better start paying attention. So now i got to go back and read the other two parts to see what happened. <laughs> and now I'm curious to see what's going to happen at the end, because it's an interesting situation, which I can't remember enough of it to describe it, but it's it's worth checking into if you like that kind of stuff. Um, if there was too much science um, in detail in the Martian you'll like the movie because they couldn't put all those calculations and all those descriptions in a movie or the audience would leave. So if you will like the movie, um, the book has shows that the character, um, Mark, has good sense of humor. But another thing I really love about it is that um, a lot of people blame their problems on somebody else. And when they're having a hard time, it's all about whose fault is it. And Mark never did that. He turned his mind, you know, in a positive direction. And, you know, he solved little problems and then bigger problems and more long-range problems. And they didn't, you know, he didn't fling mud at the people for deserting him. Or it, it, One thing in the book, she's pretty hard on NASA, or the author was hard on NASA, but they took some of that out for the movie and NASA didn't come out looking quite as bad but um, it's one of those it's a very feel good movie um, when it's over you know you feel the whole world not the whole world but many countries and 
celebrating that this guy's survival and the scene at the end when he when he throws out all the innards of the rocket he's going to ride up to escape the you know Mars he he's they call it a convertible because all there is between him and space is this tarpaulin or this plastic wrap stuff and duct tape and and that that description of his ascent into space is really nail biting and exciting. Yeah, I wondered how they were going to do a movie of it because so much of it was inner thought in the book, and so um, I'm glad to know that. I, I fully expected I'd like the movie better than the book, which is unusual for me, but we have some DVS theaters here, too, so I'll probably go check it out. I, I suspect and I hope that it's going to be on uh, the various movie vaults on the web in described form so uh, people like me can go and get it. Um, it sounds like the optimism is a lot like what they did with um, Interstellar. And I'm glad that they're doing movies like this. And I really kind of look forward to the the science and to see how they described it in the in the film. Because I think that was one thing I loved about the book was all that engineering stuff. It was just really cool. I'm glad they did a movie out of that book. I really didn't think that would have been a candidate for a movie, but I'm glad they did. I didn't even know about this until you guys started talking about it. No, I didn't either, and that's kind of exciting. Um, Do you have any idea who did the screenplay, anybody? No, I just know Ridley Scott directed it. And, and of course, he said the name of the screenplay last when we heard the credits before we left the movie theater, but I wouldn't remember his name. (laughs) Go ahead. The way we know about Ridley Scott and things like that are that we, I go to Google and I Google the movie's name and reviews, and we read reviews before we go. That not because we always agree with them, but they give us some insight ahead of time and kind of help us to watch out for certain things, and it makes us notice more. That sounds like a good idea, especially. If you like to go to movies, but you don't want to waste your time on something that you don't think you'll really like. Um, let's see, you know, the more I sit here and think about it, you were mentioned in the thing about language. I'm pretty sure that there was a time in the book where that exact thing happened about him saying a curse word and then telling him to watch his language. So it's not that they added anything. It's just that they took away some of the language in other in other places, which is probably plenty of a good idea because it was pretty blue in places uh you were talking briefly about the ending about how he um you know had to kind of rip the ship apart and the the capsule or the whatever it was that he was in that really impressed me in the book and i'm wondering now how they're going to do it in the in the film because i think you said it was really vivid and i would imagine that would have been a really hard thing to set up because he's got to actually be falling out of the sky in this flimsy thing. <laughs> so I bet that's going to be interesting to see how they did that. On uh, last week's Science Friday, which is a show on NPR, and there's also a podcast of it, they actually had a NASA scientist uh, review the movie, and they both really liked it a lot. They liked the positive atmosphere of it and everything else, and they said it's nice for a change not to have NASA always be the bad guys and stuff like that. And the only thing he said that wasn't accurate was the way that the guy got off the planet. But he said that was really a minor point, considering most of the movie probably would work. 
Yeah, he did have to, you know, strip the the module or whatever of, of everything the MAV. because it was too heavy to get as far as he needed to go. But um, what you'll like, Mary, is that you can actually, when he's accelerating, you can actually hear the canvas flapping against the sides, and it eventually does. It, it's because Mars' atmosphere is so thin that they're able to get away with it, but eventually does tear off, and he is, you know, but then he's in space, and it, he's in his suit, so that's his world that he's and and there is a time when little things are hitting his visor little bits screws and little diddles and things that came off and that's pretty frightening because you know you don't want to breach yeah if i remember from the book there wasn't much of a visor left by the time he got up to the ship <laughs> it, was, it was practically cellophane or something well that's going to be interesting they, uh, since it, most of the most of the book took place with him being alone and you know figuring out these things, did he do a monologue through the whole movie, or how, or you know how, to, how how was that presented? He did. It was part part of it was certainly. But part of it was him communicate when he finally established communications with Earth. Part of it is him talking, you know, on his on his making his communication. The audio description really helps. It's so wonderful. But he recorded, you know, he recorded stuff before that, before he, because he was talking about how how many potatoes he can grow, and, and he talks about building the nitro, you know, the hydrogen, you know, burning the hydrogen to get the water and uh, all that stuff. It's so like, he does record some stuff, so you can hear him talking. You know, he, he is there by himself quite a bit before, you know, then you go on back to Earth and. Uh, NASA discovers, you know, the woman discovers that he's there. Um, it's like the captain's log in Star Trek. So, it, you know, you get really used to it. So he's not typing in his entries. He's facing a camera and recording his entries. And so that's how they get away with, you know, him not sounding as if he's talking to himself. The casting is really good, too, because in the book, Mindy was pretty shy and she was a cog of many, many workers who just in rows and cubicles and you know, this this discovery because she was more observant really kind of brings her into a long limelight that she never actually sought. Did they do the part where in the book where the airlock falls apart and stuff just scatters all over the place? Man, that would be interesting to see. Oh yeah, they they did. You can hear it exploding because I know, and then the you know the potatoes are flash frozen, and you can hear him walking across the you know the the field where his you know where his potatoes were, and picking up a leaf, and you can hear it crumbling. It's you know, devastating. When he uh, when he uh, picks it up, you can hear it. You know, I, I definitely did that part of it. Well, it's getting on towards ten o'clock. I think we should probably choose a book, and I'd like to put forth uh, a book that Mary had mentioned. In the in, on the list, and a friend of mine who doesn't come to our meetings, but she read it and liked it very much, and that's the Bowl of Heaven. I don't know what other people think. Mary's already read it. We can't read it. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> it's kind of in the Larry Niven universe, and uh, 
if you read some of Niven's books and the puppet masters and some of that, there's no puppet masters in there, but the whole idea is of finding this huge bowl in space when this expedition is trying to get to a star, which turns out it's already, uh, the planets are already inhabited and the, the inhabitants don't want them. I think that's, that's kind of in the second book in the series, but it's interesting to imagine this huge bowl in space and the, all these species living on the rim and, uh, Mostly, though, the first book is the exploration, so you get to kind of get a good idea of what's what's going on with it. But it's very much in the Larry Niven universe because um, it is its unusual thing. It's not the integral integral trees, and it's not it's not the puppet masters, and it's not um, anything like that. But it's a huge bowl, which um, gets rather complex the more you get into it. But the first book is kind of the intro to the whole thing. Puppet Masters, that was Heinlein. You're thinking of the puppeteers, whom I liked quite a lot, even though they were devilishly frustrating and devious. Um, yeah, it, this isn't another ring world, but, but, but it's a big structure. I always like these kind of mega structures, because you can just, no matter what the author shows you, you, your imagination can always go beyond it and think of something else, because he can't show you half of what's on there, or even a, a tenth of what's on there. Um, this is Larry Niven and Gregory Benford, two of the giants. You know, Benford has done fabulously, you know, his Galactic Center series, which I thought was pretty great. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind reading it. Um, we do have the other book, the Peter F. Hamilton, which we talked about last month, but we've read a lot of him. No, we've done Niven before also. Uh, not Benford, though, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, but this is a new book to you, so... Uh, well, this says the other one. Um, oh. I haven't read The uh, Abyss Beyond Dreams by <laughs> Peter Hamilton yet, and it's been out for a year now, and I've been meaning to, and I still oh. haven't been able to get to it. Um, so, uh, but this one's on Bard, so it's first of a sequel, and we don't know when the second one's going to show up. Um, okay. But the same is true of the Peter F. Hamilton, and it's not on Bard at all, and we don't know when the second one of that one is going to show up either. So uh, I'll go with uh, what people uh, want to go with. Uh, I'll read The Bowl of Heaven if uh, people want to read that. It's definitely shorter than the, the Peter F. Hamilton, that's for sure. Um, and I think Lissy would probably rather read The Bowl of Heaven also. But we'll see what other people, if anybody else has any ideas... Oh, I'll be glad to read it infinite times more than I have. Um, seems like every time I read it, I always learn something new. It's probably about, I would say, 12 hours, but it might be a little shorter than that. And the narrator isn't all that good, but um, if you've got Audible, um, get the Audible version. Um, otherwise, I guess the Bard version will do. I think we read Benford. Wasn't he the one that wrote that book about this big, huge thing that roamed across one of the moons of Jupiter or whatever it was? I can't think of the name of it. I'm sorry. I probably ought to shut up and let somebody else answer because I don't know the answer to that. I had a specific comment. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think it was, it was called Artifact or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That was over, the, over Ganymede, that strange device that nobody could figure out what it did. Yeah, um, I think it was called Artifact. Um, but yeah, oh, you're right. I'd forgotten that. So we have read Benford, and we've read Niven. Um, but uh, yeah, I like mega structures. I'll go with the Bowl of Heaven, though I do want to read Peter F. Hamilton someday. 
I guess I would marginally prefer the Peter F. Hamilton. I like his books a lot, and I'm pretty lukewarm about Mr. Niven. Now, Kevin, you mentioned The Fire Upon the Deep. I think I read that a while back, but I can't remember much about it. But it seemed, I do remember it seemed like it, had, it was in different spheres, something to do with it. There were some things happening on a planet and then other, other levels in different parts of space. And I wouldn't mind reading that again sometime. Refreshing my memory. Uh, we did that one. The club did that one. It's on my favorites, and I thought everyone else was nuts because they didn't <laughs> rave about it as much as I did. I'll be honest with you. But uh, we did that book quite a while, a couple years ago, I think. I can look in my. Uh, I have every meeting for the last seven years on my computer, um, so I could look it up. But um, yeah, we did that one. Uh, it was the zones of thought. There was the beyond and the transcend, and then the slow zone and the unthinking depths um and uh it was it was awesomely great i wouldn't mind reading it again myself but as a club we we did that one quite a while back he must have because i don't remember reading it with you guys i remember reading it independently and getting about halfway through it and wanting to finish and never did <laughs> there's a sequel to that by the way on bard i've forgotten the name of it but it takes place in a different time Essentially, I think it happened before Fire Upon the Deep, but I could be wrong about that. It's either before or after it. Um, that's the, a deepness in the sky, and the only the only reason they're related is because Fom Nguyen, the one of the main characters in A Fire Upon the Deep, was in uh, a deepness in the sky, and that you're, that was before um, it was before A Fire Upon the Deep, and. The, the the race of aliens, which I'm surprised, Mary, you didn't get through it because the aliens are just fascinating. They're 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 kind of look like dogs, and they and they're only intelligent in packs of four or more, and they communicate. Well, they they kind of have a telepathy, but it's not really psychic. It's just you know high frequency communication that you can't hear. That so they they share their thoughts as a pack, but individually they're no brighter than an actual dog, but together they're quite intelligent and you know some some of the humans land on this world and they learn to communicate with them and some of them are evil and some of them are good and oh man i'm surprised you couldn't finish it because the i would have thought the aliens would have hooked you i'm kind of with deb i would lean towards the hamilton book a little more too but i'm certainly willing to go with the bowl of heaven because i'm going to read the hamilton book anyway well there's always next month for the hamilton book or we can read the Hamilton book this month and leave the ball of heaven to next month. Uh, well, the the thing that re, that leans in favor of the Hamilton book is that we have five weeks this month and only four weeks next month, so it's it's a, a longer time to get a longer book done. But um, but I'll go with the consensus on that because I'm, I'm I'm really kind of waffling. I wouldn't mind you know I wouldn't mind reading the ball of heaven, but you know, sweetie. Yeah, I'm all for. I think that's a good idea to read Hamilton this time because it's so we have more time to read it, and it's such a long book. And and then read the Bowl of Heaven next. Okay, uh, it, it sounds like a consensus might be developing, but uh, let me see what people think. Is the Hamilton book on Barnes or just Bookshare? I think it's just on Bookshare. Somebody said, um, "I'm okay with either one," but that does sound like a good plan, and. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the we're com- we'll be coming up for this one with Thanksgiving, which is bad enough. But then the next one will be for Christmas. Yeah, it is just on Bookshare. I've already converted it to audio, so I 
if I can read it, whatever. It's a huge file. It's over a gig. <laughs> but that's just because, not because of the size of the novel itself. It's just because of the size of the audio file it was created. Um, but it says the audio file, if you go that way, is about 18 hours long. So that it is a bit longer, but, you know, whatever whatever people want, it makes sense probably to read the longer one this time. Okay, so what's the title? It's called The Abyss Beyond Dreams, and uh, it takes place in the Commonwealth universe that Pandora Star and Judas Unchained take place in, only uh, quite a lot, uh, quite a distance into the future. And it's got the aliens, and it's got the Void, which, if any of you have read the Void trilogy, is a fascinating place, but very dangerous to the rest of the universe. Um, the guy is just brilliant, I just think. I'm really looking forward to reading it. The guy is just brilliant with the storytelling and the imagination and the characters, and he does almost everything right. Uh, nobody's perfect, but he is very good. So uh, that's the name of it. It's a PQ book, publisher, publisher quality. So you'll get, you may not get page numbers, however. I don't oh. remember, I don't remember in the book. I have it. I've downloaded it quite a long time ago. But <laughs> I don't remember if there are page numbers in it or not. But um, it's about 900K, if I remember correctly, on in the Braille file. So it's uh, quite a, a big file. Not as big as uh, Ventus. Uh, but uh, not too far behind. Well, I have this club to thank for introducing me to Peter F. Hamilton. The first book I read by him was the first one we read here, and he is definitely one of my favorite authors. Despite the Night's Dawn trilogy, huh? Absolutely, except that that one trilogy I started that I didn't like, that I never can remember the name of, that you always seem to remember. I read the first one and half of the second one and didn't like that one. But I've absolutely loved all the rest. Okay, so I guess it's decided then. So I'll say goodnight to everyone and go to Bookshare and see if I can get it and convert it into a DAISY audio format. And, of course, I'll put the link to it in the, uh, in the newswire. Um, and I'll get that out uh, tomorrow uh, before we go out to dinner. We're going out to dinner tomorrow. So uh, I'll try to get the newswire out before then, and I'll have all the links to the, you know, and I'll have nice blurbs and... Maybe nice. a little review, a nice review from somebody at Amazon. And uh, <laughs> So, uh, all right, we're going to do The Abyss Beyond Dreams by Peter F. Hamilton, the Great. <laughs> uh, and where our next meeting is on Thursday, November 12th, uh, 2015. And uh, we'll see you all then.